This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. avalanche of like cold case sobs is still happening and like have you noticed that it's coming more and more and more like there's like every week there's like old cases that's how an avalanche works right but i mean like avalanches tend to sort of stop at some point at the bottom of the mountain so this is something bigger it's going to go on until it's exhausted uh, as far as, and, and that's going to take a while. So it's going to continue. I mean, yeah, I don't know that avalanche was the best like analogy for it, but it does capture what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I got, um, I got a press release that I wanted to tell you about. And I, you may have seen this cause you asked me something and I was like, I think she already knows like, where I'm going with that. The press release came over from the Pennsylvania state police and it was just titled closing a cold case. Although I will go ahead and say that like, I didn't have this on my radar at all because I don't consider it a crime. It was just an unidentified person. So it's a 35-year-old cold case. So it's a case from October 22nd of 1987. And the, the gist of it is Pennsylvania State Police were investigating who the passenger was in an Indiana, Pennsylvania crash, the town of Indiana in Pennsylvania. Uh, There was a woman and she was a passenger in a tractor trailer that crashed at mile marker 119.4 eastbound, uh, which would have been in the township of Stony Creek, which is in Somerset County. But she was from Indiana, Pennsylvania. And the tractor trailer struck the fuel tank of another tractor trailer and it killed the driver and it killed a passenger, but they didn't know who the woman was. So investigators had been able to identify the truck driver as a man from California, but the the passenger has been unknown. Like her identity has been unknown all this time. And in spite of like multiple attempts to identify her. So in August of 2022, so last year, the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission agreed to pay Othram's uh, lab to set up forensic genetic genealogy and DNA testing. They send their evidence down to Woodlands, Texas. And the Woodlands, Texas is where like the, the main lab is for Othram. Forensic scientists there use forensic-grade genome sequencing to produce a genealogical profile for this unknown female. And they were able to Identify her, PSP, or uh, the Pennsylvania State Police Troop T. Um, they identified the woman as Linda Jean McClure of Pennsylvania. She was 26 years old when the accident happened. Um, I thought that was a really interesting use of that type of uh, genetic genealogy to identify someone, particularly since, at least to my knowledge, there's not really a crime. Like, I don't think she was, like, held captive in the truck. I doubt it, right? 
Yeah, I, I, I sort of doubted as well. I just thought it was... Um, there was just no uh, in-life link between them. I'm sure she was just getting a ride or something, right? Right. And, like, you know, I've started to discover um, that is, like, a thing. Like, well, sure, because truckers are, can be lonely and people need rides. And there's other stuff going on, too. But, you know, whatever. Yes. It's none of my but, business. So this accident happened, like, 30 miles south of, like, where she lived. Uh, and the idea was that, uh, you know, he had picked her up somewhere close to where she lived and, and they had driven south and then this accident occurred and uh, he was identified. He's from California and she was not identified. And I just thought that that was, that was just fascinating to me. So I, I was including that as a, a tidbit here uh, as far as like true crime news goes. Uh, DNA start- is a very fascinating part of, uh, I mean, you're right, not a crime. This person, I don't even know if she was a missing person, but she was an unidentified body, which uh, even though it's not necessarily criminal, it still applies to sort of our wheelhouse of what we talk about here, right? Um, Anybody unidentified. But the point of this isn't about, you know, the fact that uh, this particular person was in the truck with a truck driver. It was just that she had died, uh, you know, an accidental death. And uh, the avalanche of DNA continues uh, in a way that now she has her identity back. Yeah. I had actually gone to the scene of something similar uh, in North Carolina. It's been a while now. Uh, but I think it was we mentioned last it. summer, I think. Yeah, I think we mentioned it on the show where, uh, like, a woman who had been picked up in Virginia, um, close to a, a place that I know pretty well, she had been in a truck that also – it didn't hit another truck. It hit uh, – these big concrete pylons that hold up bridges. It was like right under a bridge caused a massive fire. And um, I had gone there to see if there's any way to help. And I don't, from what I can tell, they still haven't really identified her, but I uh, think you and I came to the conclusion that uh, we believed she was in the, the, the debris pickup and probably part of the, remains that they did have that they presumed to be the driver and his um his dog um but that was my presumption and i haven't looked at this case in like a while i did ask you about that the other day and i think it was because of this identification but um you know i i remember and i'd have to go back and look like i said but i remember them being so uh defiant that uh, she was not part of the wreckage. So I don't know how that progressed. I felt like I needed to sort of uh, not be uh, engrossed in that anymore because of the way that it sort of ended as far as my research went. Uh, They closed it down. Do you remember that? You mean... The highway highway patrol, like they released like a press statement and it said like, you know, we've, the medical examiner is absolutely sure she was not in the vehicle. And that was sort of the end of what I looked into because that's really hard to argue with. (laughs) Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I, I don't want to derail things too far. I'm not sure what's going on there. I have continued to poke a little bit at that, but I really wanted, so, all right. In terms of like identifications and stuff like that, when they happen real quick, they're basing it on things seen at the scene. And I was trying to get a feel for what they were going to do with that case because I thought um, my understanding was that everything they sort of separated out and went 
that's biological and that's related to the truck and the fire. I got the impression there was some overlap and I wasn't sure how far that's going to go when the driver has clearly died. And I was trying to take kind of a crack at it to see if, uh, if it comes back around and there's an actual investigation, there were some weird things that were being done with like insurance companies and the people who owned the trailer and the, and, you know, contracted the driver. I was sort of waiting for all that to die down before I asked too many questions there. I did. Um, I spoke to a couple of, I would say family friends and family members who maybe weren't like directly, uh, they, they they had like a little Facebook group and they were all talking about it. And I got, I got in and, and talked to a few of them um, just to see if I could help. I didn't get the impression I could help in the, like the immediate. And then I got really concerned because I was like, I guess that evidence is going to be gone. Uh, but there are some like insurance matters that are freezing some of it up. And I was like, well, maybe I got a minute here. I don't think I can help. Um, but I did kind of, keep an eye out for what was happening with it. I think ultimately um, I think she's either completely gone, which is possible, but, uh, or she's been sort of lumped into something that's been misidentified. And they, in my opinion, that medical examiner statement was a little early. I thought so too. Um, But to me, it also was, I guess at the time, I don't really know what all was happening. I think it was at the end of summer. Um, but I thought to myself, well, there's not going to be a whole lot more investigation once that gets shut down like that. Because that's how I interpreted the release, right? It was sort of like there was no question of fire. There was no question evidence. She was in the truck with the truck driver um, at some point, right? Uh, the problem was that she is not found now. Like they don't, she's a missing person. And, you know, the last place anybody knew her to be was in this truck. And I, and I think I had like, and I can't remember, I think I concluded the truck driver more than likely fell asleep. That's what we thought. Yeah. The The way way the crash happened. And so, and, and it was a fiery mess basically. I mean, it was, everything was just, you know, charred beyond and it was a terrible crash and she still hasn't been found. And I felt like, um, very deflated (laughs) when I read the statement that was issued, but it was very kind of put offish. And I felt very, I had a lot of sympathy for the family because, um, you know, in the event she was in that crash, they had a long road ahead of them. Uh, but I just, I had to kind of put it to the side because of whatever else was going on in, you know, the research I was doing. But, uh, to my knowledge, she still has not, you know, resurfaced as not a missing person any longer. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'm not sure there's even an investigation that's continuing because I believe it was like the medical examiner through the, the highway patrol was giving the statement, but you know, it, yeah, it, I don't think there's a law enforcement investigation continuing. I think that this has become one of those matters where now people are owed money for things related to the property involved. And that's more company to company or like insurance company to insurance company. Does that make sense? I think they're looking into some, not related to her even, like it's related to the truck, the driver, 
any property that was on the trailer. And I know the trailer's ownership was in dispute because they had, uh, it had come up that they had put in a request to destroy some of what was going on. And that part has been talked about. Yeah. Well, I hope that, um, you know, I hope something has come of it. I probably will circle back around to it. Hopefully it's not in, you know, a million years, like the other case that the news that we were talking about, um, now it doesn't seem like there was a dispute that, you know, they had found, they no question had an unidentified body in that wreck. Right. Yeah. This is sort of the opposite of that in that it happened at, you know, sometime in 2022, I believe it was end of summer, maybe early fall. And the problem was that somebody came up missing all the information that the family had was that she was in this truck that crashed. And then, you know, everybody that was sort of dealing with the aftermath of the crash was saying, no, she wasn't there. And so that's like a whole different, just really frustrating situation, right? Yeah. It is a frustrating situation, and I do feel for those guys, and I hope they get some kind of closure. And she was very young. That was the thing that stood out to me. It's like she's just she was around the same age this girl is, I think, this girl that we just talked about um, with Linda. Uh, I feel like she had a couple of kids too, maybe. Yeah, she was a young mother. Um, that is what was sticking out to me. So, if if I remember correctly, Linda Jean McClure, which I closed that tab as we're. Uh, talking about it that woman was 26 years old and i want to say that Alyssa uh taylor who is the virginia woman she was 25 or 26 as well uh, i did you know like the last thing i heard there was you know the driver daniel mcneil and his dog were identified um and allegedly one of the family members found one of her earrings in a storm drain that was at the crash site which that sort of uh, I was I was actually doing something completely different when we heard about this. I was uh, there's a double homicide that had happened, and I was that's not made it on here yet. But I was doing some coverage for that. Yeah, I had gone, yeah, okay. gone to that scene. I had driven down and gone to that scene, and while I was there, this ha- had happened. And someone said to me, and actually, it wasn't even something somebody said. Uh, someone passing through there knew that I was in town, and it sent they sent me a video of the fire around the, on the, around the truck. And I think I shared that with you, but that is how I came to know about this. It was like the, the fire because they were just warning me that if I crossed through that area, I wouldn't be able to go over the bridge because they were going to be closing the bridge that the truck had crashed underneath the bridge. And it was massive. It was a massive fire, but uh, the family did find uh, earrings at the scene after that. And, uh, that's sort of where I left it for now. I think they felt like that maybe provided a little bit of closure, but I was just, I was sort of talking about these two because they, they feel they have a lot of similarities in my, in my mind. Um, one of them is, you know, from 1980s and one is from 2022. Right. Um, and it really is a thing that people end up in uh, vehicles. It doesn't seem to matter that people were able to track where she was. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, but I don't know where that's going to go. I, if I had to guess, I would say it's going to go absolutely nowhere. Yeah, that I don't. I, I don't. I don't know either. I I did have. Um, I have one thing I was going to address before we get into like today's topics. Um, I got a message from someone. Um, it's a very nice message, uh, and there was a couple questions in there. Um, I'm going to call him Matt because his username appears to be his full name, like his real name. Sure. Um, I'm just going to call him Matt. 
um, he messaged me and he asked me, you know, he said he had some confusion about some of the stuff in season one. Was I saying Israel Keys did all of those things? That's his first question. And no, that's not what I was saying. I was showing sort of in the timeline of Keys uh, what was happening that could ultimately be attributed to him. And I was sort of making a tongue-in-cheek commentary on how people tend to either think Keys has done nothing or Keys has done everything, which is something Meg and I have addressed before. Um, uh, it is a little confusing and I've thought about going back and cleaning up some of that, but it really was the story that I wanted to tell because those things like, um, he brought up a couple specific cases from like California, Oregon, and Washington in the first season, that is me learning to figure out what keys did and didn't do. And I'm sort of presenting it to the audience for the audience to make their own conclusions. And it's also a little bit of a messy season because I was learning how to translate my stories into audio form. So that's answering the first part of his question. The second part, he asked about uh, two specific victims that I don't mention. Um, and it escapes me, like as I'm sitting here, uh, why? But I, I, I can tell you this. Um, the two specific people he asked me about, they're both living. They're alive. Um, and I guess they've been mentioned elsewhere recently. Um, one of them is a gentleman with a kayak. Um, he is alive. He lives on the East Coast. I spoke to him by Facebook. And he was ruled off my list very early on in 2020. Um, the other one lives in California. She does not use the same name anymore. And she is alive. She, I don't know why she left, um, but she, she left. And that is why they are not mentioned in season one of our show. Um, right. I guess they, yeah, we did a lot of that. Like we found about five of those people, I think. Uh, it's well, yeah, for that. Um, I find a lot of missing people that are alive, honestly. Um, yeah. And, and they I've, don't made ever some come up. <laughs> I've made some mistakes too. Cause every once in a while I will think I have found someone <laughs> and they are not necessarily them, but in, uh, the instances of these two, uh, people that he's asking about. Um, and I just wanted to answer his question in case other people wondered like why I don't include like certain victims that like other places talk about. Um, that's why now the third question he asked, is very interesting. And I think I know where he got it from. Um, the question is, and this ties into today's show, was Keyes a disorganized or an organized uh, serial killer? And the answer is neither and both. So, Well, that's so, also something each person would have to decide for themselves, but yes. Well, he, it's a very technical thing that he pointed to here. Um, oh, okay he's looking at what the FBI's behavioral science unit has qualified as uh, disorganized and organized. Um, he's, he's both. So the act, so his planning is actually very organized. Um, there are some things about like, you would probably find murders that were better planned than anything you can imagine that anything you can imagine in keys if keys has committed a bunch of murders because he is doing the kill kits. He's doing the, you know, the caches, he's, he's got it planned out, like where he's going to go. He knows how random it's going to be. He knows what can be tracked and can't be tracked. I would say there is an element of him as an offender that is very organized, but he ticks a lot of the boxes for being disorganized. Um, you know, the alcohol use, uh, the uh, losing control that, you know, is how he describes things. Um, he, he is what would be classified as a mixed organization offender overall. Um, and I think where this is coming from 
um, is a long time ago I'd commented on a, a case that Keyes' name is sometimes attached to. I'm going to mention it briefly, and then I'm going to move on. I, uh, I want to say someone has recently published something about this. I uh, was one of a couple of people being interviewed, and, and I honestly don't remember where this happened. It was affiliated with another podcast. It was very early in the first season of our show. Um, the, the person interviewing me was very nice uh, podcaster, and they had asked me about a, a very specific case out of Seattle, Washington. Um, it's a young Indian girl who had been killed. I want to say she was killed on a Halloween night in 2008 or 2009. There was some stuff that aligned with keys and like some unknown DNA. Um, this is how I will answer if there's a further question here, because I feel like this particular, this person emails me from time to time and I feel like there might be a follow-up. I don't usually answer it on the show. I would say that Meg and I have questions about where keys DNA is. My assumption would be that if he were the offender in that particular case, which if I'm recalling it correctly, and I didn't look anything up about this case, um, I want to say that you could find at least one good podcast about it that's maybe 10 episodes long. Uh, I've been told about it, but I haven't listened to it. Um, I'll say this. What I remember that case is there were about three suspects and the there was a gentleman who stayed in jail for a very long time, and I apologize, I do not know his name. Then there was a second suspect that seemed to be a good suspect or an accomplice, and then there was a third suspect that had either motive or opportunity, and not both. Their DNA was found at the scene, but the scene was affiliated with a party that had happened the night before or any hours before the murder. I will say that bringing up keys in that instance was pretty irresponsible, but I understand why they did it. And uh, I want to say it was the, like a public defender, like a capital public defender level, meaning they do it professionally and they do the, the hardest defense cases. The, the question that came up there, I, I did follow one of those trials. Um, the question that came up there about DNA sort of ties back into what Meg and I talk about with DNA, just like we, like we just did. It is, very difficult uh, to state when and why DNA got to a particular scene. But one of the things that the public defender did in that trial that was very important to remember is all of those men's DNA had a completely plausible reason to be there that wasn't murdered. Most of what was happening there, as far as the actual crime, was committed by an organized offender, at least mostly organized. And I think that bringing up Israel Keys is pretty irresponsible after the fact. I do know there's been at least two, maybe three trials um, related to this, and I followed one of them. It ended in a mistrial appropriately, but they kept the guy in jail. But this young woman, her family has never gotten any closure. Uh, and I, you know, I never really state things 100%. I am pretty sure because of the circumstances of how that went down. Uh, I want to say it's Halloween. It may not have been Halloween. Um, that keys had nothing to do with that. Um, and I, and I apologize for not like bringing up your actual email. I, um, I had already like, I went looking for it, but I remember your questions. I don't remember her specific name, whoever that victim was. Um, I do not believe that Israel keys had anything to do with her either. Um, in case that's your follow-up question. 
so that having been said, let me ask you, Meg, do you think Keys is an organized or disorganized offender? I think that um, a mixed organization killer would be or offender is what he is. And the reason for that is, you know, basically what you said. But you have to wonder, or at least I have to wonder, it he he liked to plan things, uh, at least according to the interviews I've listened to. Uh, when he's speaking with the United States Attorney's Office and the FBI, he liked to, he had this like grand scheme in his mind. But when it came down to it, something that comes to mind is like how he like, uh, you know, we have Bill and Lorraine's case, Bill and Lorraine Courier's case to um, go off of. And when it comes down to it, he basically, he went through a lot of trouble to, you know, locate a place that was vacant uh, as the second site after he kidnapped them. And he drove around a whole lot. But then at the end, he, you know, stopped short of actually disposing of their bodies, right? He stopped short of um, burning their car. He, he made a very limited effort. And so I think in his mind, he had, he was very organized. But I think his actions... Uh, he didn't account for like the variables that would inevitably come up, right? And uh, that made him his results very disorganized. Um, now, you know, from the jump, when we first heard about Israel Keys, it was like he was this genius, right? <laughs> um, I, I, I would you agree with that? That's how he was portrayed. There have been multiple iterations that have portrayed him in that regard, yeah. Right. And what I remember was basically he was smart enough to take his battery out of his cell phone when he was traveling. (laughs) Um, That's how I like, and you know, it's a perception thing. Um, He, he wasn't like necessarily, I don't feel like he was a genius by any stretch of the imagination, but he did have like these very um, specific motivations and he did make plans everyone's probably really fortunate that he was partially disorganized, right? Because um, I think it would have been a whole lot worse if he if he could have brought to fruition everything that was in his mind because he was truly, like, not... He was an evil person, right? He was a bad person. And um, I think that it was to everybody's benefit. But I do think that um, he, he had trouble... Um, uh, bringing the organization of his brain into his actions. I think that's accurate. I mean, I, I think there's also like, I think the most organized killers sort like, I sort of disagree with the typology in the first place of organized and disorganized. I don't want to say that and insult somebody who sort of believes in it, but like overall, I think, I think the majority of people who are these offenders, which is a finite amount of people to begin with, I think statistically they would be mixed killers like even if they did something that was very organized i think you would find moments of disorganization where they were either drinking or they were like you know there's a number of different things can that can make an offender disorganized and like the the for for one thing a lot of time their uh, motivations and their background are what sort of make them um disorganized but what you will find with uh, this is the biggest thing for me with a disorganized killer when things are out of control you tend to see overkill 
overkill is almost always a sign that somebody is disorganized. That doesn't mean they didn't plan it. That doesn't mean they weren't careful. It just means that like when it actually came to the crime, like they checked out or dissociated or, or went to their murder place or whatever they do that makes them take that last step, which crosses from them being an assaulter, a rapist, a kidnapper to being an actual murderer. And they've done it multiple times. It could be that like some of their crimes do look organized, but realistically, um, and we're going to find out today. I, I disagree with like how they look at Bobby Joe Long. Realistically, most offenders aren't as it's not as easy to qualify them. People like to put things into like little like compartments or or types. Um, I remember like reading stuff uh, from uh, the different people that have done these huge studies for the FBI. I think the names that people know would be like Robert Keppel and and Richard Walter. Um, they had a lot of, like, there, there were a, a number of studies that have been published over the years. They did this with rapists. They would divide rapists into, like, power rapists versus anger rapists. And then they would divide those types of general categories out into, like, power reassurance or power assertive. Or um, there was one anger one I never remember. I think it's retaliatory, but it, don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. And then the other one was uh, anger excitation. And like when they do that, when you break things down into categories, um, that's fine. And it's all well and good for like gathering information to do that. But I don't think it necessarily gives you like a true window into motive. And I it think was, it's just what? conceptual research is what they're yeah coming up with there. It's not individualized, which, you know, it's an evolution anyway, like criminology, the profile of, you know, somebody committing crimes. It's like taking something from nothing and then just doing whatever you can with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what they're doing. And so uh, you and I, we, I kind of disregard, I, it's not that I don't believe in it or it's not right. I mean, I, I just, it doesn't really, it exists, right? I know it exists. Um, but just from my personal point of view, I look at things more individualized. Yeah. And, but see, we have the benefit of that conceptual research that's already been done, right? Um, and so we have that benefit to look at it and say, well, that makes sense or it doesn't make sense or whatever. And so, you know, it's from that, that it's evolved to where like you and I and the internet, <laughs> we can look at situations and we can make, uh, other sort of relevant findings. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that we had, uh, that benefited us with being able to look at, at Bobby Joe Long. So first of all, uh, as you always say, the passage of time is one big part of uh, what happened with uh, us being able to examine him more accurately. The bulk of his crimes um, took place in uh, essentially the worst crimes took place in 1984. Uh, and it was this one long spree where he was caught at the end of it. But we're going to talk about that today. But what I wanted to to point out first is also with the passage of time, other people have put together like information that doesn't seem super useful on the surface. And this one has disappeared from the internet as well. Um, this was a, like a, a profile rundown. And I don't know if a lot of people see those because by the time we get them in the news or the mainstream media, what we tend to hear is like just a couple of things from the perspective of like 
unsub profiles, like if they're looking for someone who's not identified yet, we get this information where they're like, oh, we think it's going to be a white male and he's between 25 and 60 years old and he has this type of job. We've used those. We've talked about them before on the show. But one of the profiles that they do is after the fact. And a lot of times you'll find them being organized for a pre-sentencing investigation. Um, In this instance, this comes from the old radford.edu website, which I don't think it's on there anymore at all. Um, It has about seven or eight student researchers and then um, another seven or eight people were involved in in writing it up for, this is a Radford Virginia University's Department of Psychology. So what I wanted to point out with that was, all right, this is how generic the uh, pre-sentencing investigation uh, would sound. In this instance, that's not what it is. It's actually them looking back on his crimes and trying to apply those categories and types. General information about Robert Long um, is he's a white male. His number of victims is he has 10 murder victims. And that number, from what I can tell, there's a plus symbol next to him if you go hunting him on Murderpedia or Wikipedia or wherever. I don't know like how different that is going to be. I don't think it's going to change a lot. Um, I don't think that we necessarily know if there's an 11th or a 12th victim, but, but he has 10 victims in a spree in 1984. And they believe that he has over 50 rape victims. The bulk of his killing is known to have occurred in, you know, the country of the United States and the state where the killing occurred, as far as we know, is Florida. Then they organize like his childhood information. So his date of birth is October 14th, 1953. He was born in Canova, West Virginia. His birth order is that he's an only child, so he has no siblings. Then they have the question of, you know, X, Y, Y, question mark, as far as his chromosomal makeup. He, is, he has an extra X chromosome, according to this. He was raised primarily by his mother. His father was intermittently present, which we've already talked about. His parents were actually divorced and remarried and then together and not together several different ways throughout uh, Robert's life. Uh, ultimately, the, the family trigger event that they mark up here is that there was, you know, a divorce. It's unfortunate for someone like Robert Long because it happened twice. It happened when he was two years old that they get divorced and separated and he goes through this period with his mother. But then... It happens again that they get back together and remarried and redivorced when he's 10. As far as educational problems, he failed the first grade. Uh, he repeated the 10th grade. Uh, he was teased in school for uh, his jaw and his teeth. But he was deemed by this group to be physically attractive or average looking. Um, I don't know exactly what they put in that category, but like there was nothing about him that would make you run away from him, which is sort of like when we were talking about Harvey the Hammer. That guy I would never get near. I would run away from him. You know what I mean? I do. I think that um, it. I think that average is a good way to sort of put that because yeah, most people. Uh, I mean, there are something. You know, if somebody comes out and they're dripping with blood all the time. That's gonna. You're gonna. You know, that's gonna be an aversion to being around them. Yeah, I don't I don't know what would be defined as like how they come to the conclusion he is considered physically attractive or average, but looking at his mugshots over the years, I totally believe it. He looks like I, I don't know how to explain it. He's 
very unassuming looking to me. He's as just far a as normal the, guy. I mean, yeah, he looks normal. Um, he did, you know, and he did have some issues, but right, nothing and that, was so like blatantly obvious. Yeah, so that's the very next thing they they say were there any physical defects, and they point out here. So he had had the accident where his teeth and jaw were damaged. That's under physical defects, and they point out that he had the this issue with his body shape and his breast tissue due to the extra X chromosome. And he eventually had them surgically reduced. So that's mentioned in this, in this profile they're doing. Uh, the next question is, do you have a speech defect? And he is, has, it does not have a reported speech defect. And I realized I have never heard his voice. So I do not know um, if there was something weird about the way he talked. Uh, I didn't look super hard to hear him talking, but, uh, for the purposes of this, I, I don't know if he has any kind of speech defect. I'm going to go with their answer of not reported sounding correct. Um, as to whether he was physically abused or not, that was not reported, but I will qualify that by saying it is suspected to some degree that there was physical violence between him and his mother. It's, it's technically unreported in that like there's no arrest for it there's definitely arrest for him being physically violent that in a way that doesn't result in murder um but and that goes with his relationship partners he had a trusted friend that he married and you know he definitely had hurt her significantly but as far as was he physically abused um it is not to the point that it's in the record of anything for the court records for this psychological report i will say that um that's a passage of time sort of thing too because um in by today's standards like just about everybody in his generation was physically abused because they got their butt tore up right so yeah. that's a whole open-ended thing there but yeah, I it don't, is. um i i do feel like he would have been spanked just like every one of his peers so yeah and i, I you know so the next category on here was, was he sexually abused? And they put no, not reported. I'm going to go ahead and say I disagree with that for their next answer. I think he was because he was psychologically abused, and that's in the report. And that is like while sleeping with his mom until the age of 13, which we already talked about, he witnessed her performing sex acts with many men. He, on at least two occasions, witnessed his father raping his mother after their divorce and his mother uh, did not pay much attention to him at different times in her life. She went after men. So while that's classified as psychological abuse, I do think to some degree, if you're sleeping in bed with your mom till you're 13 and you're watching her have sex with different men, I think there is an element of sexual abuse. I don't know if it crosses over to being physically sexual towards him, but it certainly crosses over into shaping the future of his, like his capacity for intimacy with other, you know, partners. I agree with that. that? Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I I don't, I mean, obviously it wasn't reported. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I don't, I also don't feel like he would have been the kind of guy who would have reported that. No, I don't think so either. And, and I honestly think that some of the coddling his mom did would be to make up for things he might've seen or experienced. So I don't know. I don't, I don't have any evidence that he was or was not. I'm just telling you like some, we know he's not normal and his, what happened to him, like when he was in the hospital after his accident, where his sex drive suddenly went through the roof, 
in observation, which we debated whether or not that meant it was a new thing or if it was just being seen because he was in the fishbowl of a hospital room. Um, I do know that that is also not normal. Um, I will also say that while it's not classified as like physical sexual abuse, um, one of the most important elements for males, um, I guess it could be for females uh, in a different context, but one of the most important elements for like adolescent teenage males is um, they need to have a mother that at least, uh, you know, without digging really deep is an asexual figure in their life. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, even if it's not being exhibited towards him, like he still saw her as a sexual being. And that can really, me- it, it does really mess up. Um, I, yeah. It, so I don't, hmm, I don't know how to element. qualify when you're sleeping in a bed with a person that you're watching do other things in the bed with, well, even just her it's, dressing and like the way that she, the jobs that she held and like that stuff that it sexualizes her. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I don't personally know what we qualify as far as how that affected him. Well, and, and you're right. Uh, but I will say that in the absence of having a mother that is a mother without, uh, you know, just a mom, she's not a, a woman, so to speak, like in a, in a sexual way. Um, I feel like that can have a substantial impact on, uh, the development of, well, for one thing, how, uh, teenage boys grow into men and view women, right? Yeah. Um, how they treat women. And so, um, it's just, a. it's not that it, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle is all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. And that, um, he, he didn't seem to have that because in, you know, she wasn't, uh, discreet about what she was doing. They didn't shield him from it, which is sort of, that's just kind of the bar really. Right. With your children, you don't want them to, you don't expose children to stuff like that. Right. It's kind of a given. And, yeah. um, you're right. I mean, a lot of things like that are hard to qualify because, you didn't live the life with him. You have no idea what he actually saw. But I do think that there's sort of this overarching theme where uh, there's no question that his mom was a sexualized uh, char- uh, character in his life as opposed to a asexual mother figure, right? Yeah. So th- there's one more question here, and then they sort of move into family history, and they, and they go into his background. And I am going to cover some of this, but... This question was one of the most interesting to me because I've seen it and typically like there's like one entry. He has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven entries. And that is head or traumatic brain injury, question mark. Okay. And so to qualify for this, uh, typically they're trying to back it up with a doctor information um where they say they're pulling the doctor's information from here comes from well one it comes from robert long talking but it comes from the book bound to die the uh book smoldering embers now bound to die is by anna flowers smoldering embers is by joy wellman uh there's a bunch of online sources cited here but when i went through them all i realized they all cite those two books and the other thing 
um, that it cites is there was actually a case study published by the FBI. It was, it was published in the December um, like quarterly, kind of like a newsletter, but it, it had a pretty cool um, offshoot. Um, so it has an article and then it has like this full study they published. And that was in December of 1987. And it was by Michael Malone and Gary Terry. And it was titled the Bobby Joe, and that's in quotes, long serial murder case, a study in cooperation. It's a very interesting read. If you can find it online. Um, I, I, I had a copy on here, so I didn't go looking for um, whether it was easy to find online, but I, I'm sure you can at least find it on like the Wayback Machine and, and look at it. Um, so that's there's sources for this information. I feel like those are pretty competent sources overall. Um, I've looked through, you know, uh, briefly. I've, I've actually read all of those before, but I looked through here just to make sure that I was remembering their referencing and sourcing correctly, and it seems to be spot on, even though they do reference a lot of what Robert Long says. So his head injury. We've already discussed, so I'll be brief on this, but when he was five, he fell from a swing and he was knocked unconscious. When he was six, he had a bicycle accident where he ended up hitting a car uh, that was parked and he lost consciousness. When he was seven, he was hit in the face uh, with a car bumper when he fell in front of a moving car and he, he was knocked unconscious. Um, also, when he was seven, he had a severe injury to his face when he ran across the street in front of a car. Uh, this is the thing that affected his face and his jaw and his teeth. When he was eight, he was thrown from a pony, which left him uh, in an emergency room and he was dizzy and nauseous. When he was nine, he fell off a fence. Um, he did not lose consciousness, but he had to have stitches in the left side of his head. And when he was 21, he had a motorcycle accident while he was in the Army, which allegedly caused – and I, I'm throwing in allegedly. They're saying this happened, but I'll get to that. Allegedly caused brain damage that allegedly caused an increased sex drive. Okay. That's a lot of traumatic injury. It is, but um, one of the things that I think about, uh, it may not be relevant, but, you know, that's somebody summing it up, right? How many injuries have you had? And, like, check marking off all the injuries, right? Yeah. And so, like, what is the difference between that and, like, somebody who is never asked to sum up their injuries, right? I mean, I agree. He he went through some pretty significant things. How resilient was he? Well, he was still alive, right? Now, it to me, it automatically defaults to the, uh, the negligence involved in a child experiencing all that. Yeah. Uh, more so than the physical damage that's done. However, I have absolutely no credentials to qualify my statement, except just life experience, right? I'm sure that like he was hurt repeatedly. Um, I don't know how much longstanding damage that would cause, but the fact that he was continuously, you know, he didn't have anybody saying, don't do that, like you're going to get hurt. I think that would be a very damaging element of all that stuff. Yeah, so, okay, I will qualify it by this also saying that I have no credentials to back up what a head injury or two does. I will just say that, all right, and I get, like, 
I, I have seen defense pre-sentencing investigations that come back for mitigating factors that list a lot of incidents like this, and they list substance abuse, and they list physical abuse, and they list all the things. I'm just saying that for them to have documented, um, you know, this many injuries or traumatic injuries is interesting. Not from the perspective, like, I don't know if this is a big number or a low number. I don't, like, a couple of these feel serious enough to me that I look at them. Like, the the incident where he has the broken jaw and the messed up teeth, that's a big deal to me. And I then so the- too. And I the, saw a picture, and it, it they're not kidding. It was very uh, messed up. Yeah, and the motorcycle accident, that's a big deal. Where you're stuck for months in a hospital bed. So, like, you know- whether that's like super relevant to what we're doing, I could not say how like how that really affected him. I can only say that it is reported by a vast majority of sources relating to Robert Long or Bobby Joe Long, the serial killer, is that he has these incidents of like severe head trauma. Um, that's interesting to me for a number of reasons. I'm going to get back to that disorganized, organized question here in a minute. The next phase of what they do is real simple. They say father's occupation, it's unknown. They don't know. The age of his first sexual experience, they consider that here to be witnessing his mother having sex with several random men. And I think that qualifies as sexual abuse. I don't know why it's contradicted here. Um, Actually, I think it's supported there. It's just not, uh, they just don't use it in the sexual abuse category for some reason, but um, I they would file say, it under psychological abuse. Well, right, but to me, it it supports what you're saying. It's just a different way of looking at it. Yeah, I yeah, you're probably right. Uh, age when he first had intercourse was reported as 14. His mother mother's occupation was a waitress or a bartender. That's what's reported here. I've read that she did more than that, but I have read multiple instances of her having been a waitress or a bartender. So we don't know what his dad did. We know she did that. And then it says, did either parent, like father or mother, abuse drugs or alcohol? For dad, it's not reported. And for mom, it's not reported. So we don't have a sense of whether like drugs and alcohol or substance abuse in the family plays into all of this. Now we're going to get into Robert's cognitive abilities because this is interesting to me. And this is where I think we should see evidence of those head injuries I listed. So if we were going to like, like play those out, I think they should be reflected to some degree in his cognitive ability. His cognitive abilities are um, pretty contradictory. So first of all, he only finished the 10th grade. So he was, he got to be a sophomore and then he has some, later training where he does go to like community colleges, but he doesn't go past the 10th grade. He gets his GED and then he gets certifications. And if you you remember what those were, one was as an x-ray tech and one was where he was working and as an electrician, which is more journeyman's work or trade school work. But to me, that's like, that's still hard work and it's like, it's both thinking and physical to be an x-ray tech or to be an electrician, even like a, a princess electrician. He gets really bad grades throughout school, which is ultimately why he only has, you know, a 10th grade education, but he does have a GED, but he has an IQ of 118. That ain't low. I, um, 
I have a tendency to agree with you. I feel like to the extent a brain injury could cause violence in someone, it would also um, be, it wouldn't make them smarter. Right. Like, so, okay. So I don't know how much people know about, how much do you know about IQs overall? I do know that, like, I believe we talked about, um, it's a uh, low IQ is considered less than 60 and that, uh, Anybody with an IQ below that that gets put uh, sentenced to death, that's considered cruel and unusual punishment. But as far as like what a high IQ is, I, I, I mean, I know over 100, you're looking at a at least well, average person. Well, I looked it up for this because I, I was curious and I found a couple of different like versions of it. I was really curious because we talk about it, not just me, but mainstream media talks about it. Like we compare things and I've done it with, you know, cases here. So I did go and pull because I was curious. I was like, what is like, what am I looking at with intelligence quotients? I mean, I happen to know roughly what like my score is. Um, uh, at least I thought I did. And, you know, I know like it's been talked about over the years, like different killers are this or different offenders or that. So I was curious what it was and I had never really put down like what the scale is. So I did that here just so we could talk about this for a second. So first of all, an IQ starts at one and the first level goes to 24. If you are, if you score an IQ of one to 24, you have a profound mental disability. The only thing worse than having a profound mental disability means that you have untestable for whatever reasons. And there's several reasons listed. It could be that you're in a vegetative state. It could be that you like don't have um, the fine motor skills needed to articulate speech or any of those things, but they try and do it anyway. So somehow they consider people to have a profound mental disability to have an IQ between one and 24. A severe mental disability is between 25 and 39. A moderate mental disability is from 40 to 54. A mild mental disability is from 55 to 69. And this is that it's actually 70 is, is what is spelled out in most legal situations. Okay. So, I was just going off a of memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I knew you were just, I, I knew you were just going cause, cause I, I think a lot of people do this and, and it was important from the perspective of, of laying it out here because I wanted to talk a little more about Bobby Do Long and we're headed to like, we're, we're about to wrap we're about to wrap Robert Long up. That's where we're headed. It'll either be this episode or the next episode, and that'll be it for Robert Long. Uh, the IQ thing was important to me. And 70 to 84, that's the range that the courts looking at it go, there could be something going on here. If you're below that, they don't want to execute you. And if you're above that, they, they might want to execute you. That's the bottom line to remember. So when you get to 85 to 114, you have average intelligence. So 115 to 129, you're above average, or they consider that to be a category called bright. But the idea is that's where Robert Long falls. He falls in this above average category of around 118. So that's from 115 to 129 that he falls in there. Now, if you have 130 to 144, you're moderately gifted. You have 145 to 159, you're highly gifted. 160 to 179, you're exceptionally gifted. 180 and up is profoundly gifted. And it gets a little weird for me to, for them to just keep describing gifted that way. So I'll say it this way. If you're over 130, you're pretty gifted. If you were roughly 85 to 129, you're of average, normal, or slightly above average intelligence. And that's where this guy falls. 
which is the important part. Uh, now, if you look at his work history, so, you know, Robert Long served in the Army. That's a big check mark on work history. He's discharged for medical reasons related to the motorcycle accident. Now, this, this gets interesting. Did he ever see combat duty? No. Did he kill an enemy during service? No. Did he witness others dying during service? No. This category I noticed is showing up on a lot of these. Has he ever applied for a job as a cop? He has not, but that's an interesting category. And if he has, has he ever worked in law enforcement, which is obviously no if he's never applied for a job. Has he been fired from any employment? And the answer is yes. The type of jobs that he has worked have been as an assistant electrician, an electrician, and an x-ray technician. That's overarching. That's his career. And then because he is a serial offender, they want to know his employment status during that series. Uh, so with Robert Long, he's unemployed during part of the series, and he's employed as an x-ray technician during part of the series, and he's briefly employed as an electrician during part of the series. Okay, so now we're going to get into like the overarching serial killer stuff that I don't know if people like this or not, but, but I have to do it for him because we're headed to a very specific ending here. His relationships, are they have four questions they ask. The first one is, what is his sexual preference? And he is heterosexual. His marital status is that he is divorced. And does he have children? The answer is yes. Um, he has two children. Uh, does he live with his children? The answer is no. And who is he living with? So during different stages of his life, he has lived with a spouse, his mother, his mother and father together, a girlfriend uh, by himself, and with friends or roommates. So he's had a lot of different living experiences for varying amounts of time. And now we get into what they call the triad, which is, I think this is bullshit, but I found it interesting here. So the first thing that was up was, uh, do, you, do, you know, do you know about the homicidal triad? I assume you do, but I'm going to throw it out there anyways. I actually don't know if I do or not. I don't. When you say it, I'll either know or not, but I don't okay. know what it is just with you saying that now. Okay, so the homicidal triad is this thing called the McDonald triad, and it's like it's it's like the triad of sociopathy or whatever. It's three factors. the The fact that like any two of these things are present um, is considered to be potentially predictive of someone having violent tendencies, and they relate it to serial offenses. Oh, okay. Well. Does it have to do with like arson and bedwetting and pet killing? Yes, it's that. Huh, yeah, so yeah, I am familiar with it. I didn't realize yeah. that's what it was called, though. Yeah, it's specifically called the McDonald Triad because I think the psychiatrist who brought it up is uh, his last name is McDonald. I don't know that a hundred percent, like without like looking it up and like getting deep into it. But at some point along the line, the FBI began to believe pretty heavily in some of this. This particular psychology department is including it in the the development of Bobby Joe Long's. I have history. a com I have a comment to make after we go through this about that specific thing, the the triad. But go ahead. Okay, so I'm just going to do the triad. So he was engaged in animal torture, and it's unknown if he was engaged in fire setting, and it's unknown if he was engaged in bedwet. 
Okay. Well, I was just going to mention that. I feel like, um, again, like when we were talking about organized versus disorganized and how it was like conceptual research that sort of spawned that. And and I believe it was like in the like 70s. That's just my guess. Uh, that's when the FBI was doing the behavioral profile type things, right? Yeah, everything we're talking about here really takes place, and, and that goes with all the things we're talking about compartmentalizing for organizing this nonsense. It really takes place between 1963 and 1985. Right, and so um, the triad, as you mentioned it, which is, you know, it's a pretty typical evaluation of, you know, you see it a lot with serial killers. However, you don't see those specific things with each serial killer. I do think that uh, you could take the association, the stigma, the uh, the if you delve deeper into like all the things that surround killing animals and setting fires and uh, wetting the bed, right? So wetting the bed is like an uncontrollable, embarrassing thing that children sometimes get shamed for, just depending on how your parents are about it, right? Yeah. It's actually like, it, it, it's a thing that happens, right? When you're sleeping, you really don't have control of it. But, you know, there's psychological reasons it occurs. And it, it it's usually tied to stress, right? Yeah. Um, and so anyway, my comment on the triad is, I do feel like if you delve deeper into individualized uh, cases, even if they didn't exhibit signs of, uh, killing animals or setting fires or wetting the bed, there would be similar indications for each one. So while bedwetting is sort of the universal, like uncontrollable, shameful thing a child could possibly do, it could be that it was a different behavior in a particular individual that was also uncontrollable and shameful. Yeah, uh, you're you're spot on. So. The triad has long been sort of discounted. It just happens to be mentioned here, so I was going to bring it up. It's not that it's wrong. It's not that it's right. It's that, like, overall, exactly what you're saying is true. There are other – okay, so just in terms of, like, the triad itself, and my introduction to it is not with the person who, like, thought up the idea who's probably named McDonald. I don't – I'm not familiar with their work. I may have read an article about them. My introduction to the triad was actually the predecessor to – okay, so Mindhunter, I think everybody knows that Mindhunter is like a show on Netflix. It was actually based on this sexual homicide book, which was developed by John Douglas and Robert Ressler and Ann Burgess. That like they're the characters that are featured in like the fictional show Mindhunter that is a dramatization of what they were doing. Right before that happened, there were psychiatrists, two guys, that were looking at whether or not this might all be linked. But on a smaller level, they didn't have the access of the FBI. Their names were Daniel Hellman and Nathan Blackman. And those are the people who introduced me to the concept of the triad. Now, I've read their take on it, and then I've read later takes on it. And here's what you have to think of as the true triad. So arson is what they called it, but what they really meant to say was a release of pent-up aggression. Fire was a way that children could do that. 
um, whether they were burning down a tent or whatever. So instead of saying arson, you got to say release of pent up aggression. And it may only be once or twice because if you burn your house down, you don't have a second house to burn down usually. I mean, like like somebody's going to watch you. Make sure you don't have matches after that. So that's the that's the first thing. It's like some kind of pent up aggression being released. So forget that it's arson. Anything that looks like pent up aggression. And these days, like we have some level of like even incidents with firearms that are pent up aggression being released. So the second level, which was cruelty to animals in the triad, what it is really about is it's similar to the idea of arson, but whereas with arson um, you're releasing aggression, cruelty to animals is you're, you're picking something weaker than you are to do something to. You're inflicting pain. Yeah, you're inflicting what you think you're feeling down the pecking order. So unfortunately, the way I have to say that is cruelty to animals for you know children or teenagers, even some young adults, is actually shit rolling downhill where the person thinks that downhill from them are animals. Or, you know, and it's and I say that because it's not really necessarily limited to cruelty to animals. If you're causing harm to smaller children, like that could be viewed as like how you're getting your aggression out in the pecking order. Um, It could be plants. It could be, you know, anything that like you look at as a living thing that you have control over. And that thing is sort of weak and vulnerable in your shadow. That's what you replace in the triad with cruelty to animals. It's literally using that frustration on something that is in some way alive and beneath you. But what they're really saying is that you are starting to think about doing something to something beneath you. Like when you, when they capitulate it and they say that you're committing cruelty to animals, like that doesn't mean that everyone who doesn't, hasn't committed animal cruelty, you know, isn't in that same vein. It just means that like some people have decided that their place in the pecking order is so low that they, have to like do something to something weak and beneath them. So this can be like part of what future victim selection might look like. That's how you like could use this. If you just take out cruelty to animals and you say that they're willing to do something to something beneath them, which brings us to the third part of it, which like you said, bedwetting, like do, you know, do they wet their bed? Because largely, and I'm going to go with almost all bedwetters aren't like standing at the side of their bed or on their bed, peeing in their bed on purpose. It's not that it's uncontrollable and it is extremely humiliating. So it really puts the person having the bedwetting go on in a very vulnerable, involuntary position. You were literally just asleep. You were just laying there and your body lost control of itself. It's not that actual act that they're talking about. They're actually, so if we replaced arson with releasing pent-up aggression and we replace with cruelty to animals with picking on something weaker than you are, then what we replace bedwetting is having no control 
over something that is absolutely humiliating to you. That's how the triad should really be looked at if you're going to find it useful. But there's other parts to it that like, I don't know why it still makes its way into these profiles. I mentioned it. I brought it up because I think a lot of people are confused about what it means. Right. And so again, I think they were just trying to take like this very broad concept and like make it to where, you know, somebody that's not a criminologist or a behavioral profile profiler for the FBI could have just like a basic understanding, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, and I've never read the sources you were taught. I've not looked that deep into it, but my instinct seems to be right on point as far as like what it actually means. Yeah, I was just, I, I like to be able to every once in a while try and set something straight. It's not that it's invalid, it's that people look at it wrong. Um, and in that, like, you know, if you were subject to those situations, the order of events would be backwards. Bedwetting would be first. Then you resort to fire setting, and then you resort to animal torture. But the reason that, that you do those things is the real triad, right? And you know what? They lead to one another too. They do. They really, that, that's literally what I mean. Like being humiliated leads you to have aggression that like gets pent up and then released, which leads you to like seek out something that's beneath you in order to to make it feel what you felt. Right. And so the teachable moment here is that if you're a parent whose child wets the bed, it's not a big deal. Just change their sheets. Yeah. Let it go. <laughs> don't yell at them. Um, don't make them lay in it. Don't do anything weird. It happens. Just change their sheets. <laughs> so this will be like how we wrap up uh, the the dissection of a uh, Bobby Long, and then we'll get to his being caught and what finally happens to him. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna use uh, the the last three little categories that they attach to people to to kind of segue um, out of this. The first thing we want to know is the psychological information about the killer, which has five uh, categories. The first one is have they ever abused drugs? In this instance. According to all involved, the answer is no. He does not abuse drugs. Um, the second is, has he ever abused alcohol? Um, and according to all involved, which includes Robert Long and a myriad of professionals, the answer is no. Has he ever been to a psychologist? The answer in his case is yes, but there's a qualifier here that he only went after he had been arrested. So I don't know if that counts. Do you think that counts? Like, if you go because they make you? I mean, I, I'm not sure it matters. Yeah, I guess it would count. I mean, yeah, I guess. Well, okay. So, they then ask, has he ever spent time in a forensic hospital? Uh, I don't think it's called forensic hospitals today. I think they're referencing what would be a mental health facility or rehabilitation uh, unit. That might be the best way to put it. Um, I've so, never heard that before. What do you mean? Forensic hospital? I've never heard it's that. A, it's a very old term. Um, it's so usually the way that that gets brought up is if you're so, cause we talked about forensic science along the way. If you remember, if you're in a forensic hospital, it means you're being kept somewhere because you've committed a crime and they want to know if you're all there or if, if there's might be a different way to look at your crimes. Um, but 
Yeah. So using that word that we talked about earlier on, it is legal or crime related if you were in a forensic hospital. And the answer is no, he was not. However, they want to talk about whether or not he has a diagnosis from a psychological professional. And with Robert Long, he does not have one. How many do you think he has? Uh, five. I, I think it's five. Um, I'm going to say them out here because they're not like it's not. This is all not uh, in my notes and in order where I bulleted them. I just wrote out the sentences here. So one doctor believed that he was bipolar, but they qualified that by saying he may not be bipolar. He may just be manic depressive, which in today's terms, I don't think they would differentiate it quite that specifically. But they did note that he showed with the bipolar or manic depressive uh disorder, he showed psychosis. Another doctor qualified that by saying they agreed, but they would add an antisocial personality disorder. And I've read this a couple different ways where they say he had severe antisocial personality disorder. Uh, I don't think that's a very accurate way to state that. I'll just say that, look, if you've got antisocial personality disorder, it's probably severe. Um, if you really have it, uh, Another doctor who looks like they were brought in by the defense, like to, to help try and find some mitigating factors, they believe he has an organic brain impairment. That would, in today's terms, be what's called a traumatic brain injury to some degree. But I did... Uh, I tried to look it up from the perspective of like explaining it to the audience. And I think it's a little beyond me because the idea is he may have two things going on. One, he may have had some like early issues because it depends on if they mean impairment or syndrome here. I'm going by what, is in the court record and is in this Radford document and has been mentioned in one of the books. I think that organic would mean, I, uh, right. You're going the same. Go ahead. Well, I, well, I was going to ask you to repeat what they said, but I think that that would be like, you could, it's something that's, you could actually see. Like, I, I am not a hundred percent sure what they mean by it. Cause when I first read it, my pea brain said, I think this means, that organic would be it came because of his natural development. But I think I'm confusing that with how people use the word organic in 2023. Right. But organic could also be like anything that happened in his like natural development because inorganic would be, Oh wait. Yeah. That gets a little confusing. Right. So I pulled it up and, and I'm not going to turn this into a long thing, but I am going to like say it. I pulled it up from the perspective of like, is that still a thing? So organic mental disorder in today's day and age is replaced. And I was like, okay, cool. It'll be replaced by one or two words I could say. turns out that's not the case. So in his instance, they're referencing a traumatic brain injury, but the types of things that can happen to the brain back then was people could be like amnestic, meaning they had issues with a gray zone uh, between delirium and dementia, which they divided out and said, okay, this person could have 
delirium. Delirium means they have some kind of mental impairment, or they could have dementia, which is considered to be a longer-term mental impairment. So this is the words that they recommend replacing today with, in addition to traumatic brain injury. Alcoholism, Alzheimer's disease, ADHD, autism, concussion, encephalitis, epilepsy, fetal alcohol syndrome, hypoxia, Parkinson's disease, intoxication, overdose, alcohol use disorder, substance abuse disorder, non-medical use of sedative, hypnotics, intracranial hemorrhage and trauma, Korsakoff syndrome, uh, mastocytosis, meningitis, psychoorganic syndrome, stroke or transient ischemic attacks, uh, withdrawal from any of the things above. Uh, clinical depression, neuroses, and psychoses. So my point is, I can't, in today's terms, in my education, figure out what they meant when they said he had some kind of organic brain impairment. So what I'm going to replace it with, in terms of just how we're talking, is traumatic brain injury. And I think they're referencing back to those, those head knocks this kid had when he was little. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, that's the closest I can get on all of this. Does he have a previous criminal history? That's the next big question. Um, has he committed previous crimes? Yes, assault and battery. He had two rapes that he was suspected of, and he had soliciting obscene material to a minor. Now, the assault and battery they reference here appears to be with a roommate, Um and then there is also an instance where he is accused of assault and he's accused of rape at the same time. It turns out that they go with the assault charge. Uh, and these are things that we've covered in previous episodes. I'm just telling you how they show up here. Um, did he spend any time in jail? The answer is yes. He spent two days in jail for soliciting and distributing obscene material to a minor. Two days. Two whole days. Uh, has he spent any time in prison? No, not prior to the series of events in 1984 that got him sentenced for serial killings. And had he killed prior to this series? And if so, at what age? And all it says in everything I can find here is that there's nothing documented to him having committed prior murders. All right, so this is a victim rundown. And then we'll come back to talk about how we're going to wrap up Bobby. The victim rundown is known victims. The number is 10. The victim type is mainly prostitutes or young women in their twenties. We're going to convert that and say, there's some sex workers in here. And then there's some people who sort of live higher risk lifestyles. I don't know that they're all actually prostitutes. And I, I assume that is qualified by the word mainly in their description here. Um, the killer age at the start of the series, and it was 30, which is kind of a late start. The gender of his victims was female, and the race of his victims were uh, mixed, but it was primarily eight Caucasian women, one African-American woman, and one Asian woman. Their ages, but not in sequential order, were 17, 18, 19, 21, 21, 22, 22, 22, 22, and 28. Uh, his method of killing was mainly strangulation with either ligatures, rope, or his hands. He also slit the throat of one girl. He shot one girl in the head. 
and how close did the killer live to his victims? He was within the same county, so a close radius where he could drive short term to the crimes. Um, did the killings occur in the home of the victim? The answer is no. And did the killings occur in the home of the killer? The answer is no, but some happened in his car. Uh, and was the weapon found at the scene or brought with him, which is an important distinction in organized versus disorganized. And in, and with him, and this extends to his uh, rapes as well as his murders, uh, Robert Long brought his weapon with him to the scene, whether it was a rope, a gun, or a knife. It was on his person, usually a part of a rape kit. Then it goes to his behavior during his crimes, which I think is one of the most important elements. First question is, did he rape them? And the answer is a resounding yes. That was not only uh, did he or didn't he, it was also a primary motivation for why he did this at all. Uh, did he torture his victims? The answer is no. Did he stalk his victims? The answer is no. Uh, was there overkill? The answer is no. Was uh, this quick and efficient? Largely it's efficient, but sometimes strangulation could uh, take a few minutes. Um, did he use a blindfold? Now, that's complicated because they weren't found with blindfolds, but for a very specific reason, we happen to know that at least in some instances he did. Did he bind the victims? And the answer is yes. Uh, he bound their hands with rope, and sometimes he would bind their feet and uh, sort of put them in the back seat to drive them to where they were headed next. Now we move into uh, post-mortem behavior or after-death behavior. Did he have sex with uh, the corpse or the body? The answer is no. Did he mutilate the bodies? The answer is no. Did he eat part of the bodies? The answer is no. Did he drink the victim's blood? The answer is no. Did he pose the body? And in Robert Long's case, the answer is yes. Sometimes he did pose the body, um, but not all the time. Uh, the last three questions are, I'm going to kind of do them backwards of where you would see them most places. Uh, did he rob the victim or the location that they were at? Uh, the answer is yes. He would sometimes use victims' ATM cards to make withdrawals. He also stole jewelry from the rape victims, but it's unknown like if he was also taking things from the murder victims. Um, it's suspected that he was. But specifically, they ask it about totems. They ask two questions about totems, which I think people today refer to them as trophies. Is there another word for something you might? Well, if the trophies is right, but it's it's generally just like a, a trinket that's taken, something representative. Yeah, so there's two types. So the first type is like you said, it's a personal item. It, you know, some people I've read where they like lesser known serial killers have collected IDs and underwear and jewelry from the scenes from their victims. Um, the other thing is rarer, but that is body parts. Um, there have been a few uh, killers through the years who have been known to take a piece of the victim with them. And then sort of the last little bit here is uh, about the disposal methods. So the first thing is, did he uh, leave them at the scene like out in the open? And the answer is yes, some of them were left at the scene in the open. And that means the scene of their death. 
did he leave some at the scene that he hid? Uh, the answer is no. Did he leave some at the scene that he buried? The answer is no. Did he move them from the crime scene or attempt to hide them? Uh, he did do that. In several instances, he would move them from one scene to another. Um, and there were some instances where they were sort of tucked away or covered with something uh, as far as brush or debris goes. Um, or did he move them to bury them? The answer is no. Did he cut them up to dispose of them? The answer is no. Or did he move them and take them home with him? The answer is no. Uh, and then, you know, the date that this killer was arrested was November 16th, 1984. Getting to sort of the final answer on what type of killer Bobby Joe Long is, um, is interesting because he's sort of... Uh, uh, a textbook case in many ways, although his spree is pretty short and his behavior is awful. He is, uh, he's defined as a lust killer or I, I believe he's an anger rapist. I would have to look up um, what specific, I, I don't think he's a power rapist. I think he's an, I think it's probably a lot of what he's doing is he's getting off on it which I think that would put it into the category of like anger excitation. What's weird about that um, is the victims kind of vary between his rapes and his murders. But what's not weird about it is he's very organized. He's one of the best example of an organized killer. Um, specifically, he carried a kit with him. He went hunting. He literally treated his murders like a little hunting trip. And that's it. We've got one more episode on him where we're going to talk about how he got caught pretty specifically. And we're going to talk about what happened to him and like how long it took for it to happen to him. Um, and then we will be wrapped up with him and we'll point out some of the things that he's going to have in common with the other killers that we're covering. Did you have anything else about um, Mr. Long here? You want to add yet? Um, not specifically to what we just talked about, I don't think. Did you have any commentary on like sort of um, crime behavior, uh, after death behavior, disposal of the body type behavior? Um, well, it's interesting because uh, while it is true that he is no question a serial killer, um, he gets categorized in my mind as um, he was really a rapist. And I think we talked about before how how that escalated for him, right? Um, yeah, we did. He like my theory was he was getting rid of the witnesses. That's part of what we talked about with him. Well, and it actually to me, I don't know that he even cared if he was caught or not. Um, I think it could have come into play, but I think that he was just as easily uh, happy to leave a sexual assault victim alive as he was to kill them. It was the point that he was able to get off on the experience that changed him. Because I believe that um, he gives sort of a account of his first murder. And it was that he couldn't get off by raping her. And when he strangled her, he realized that that excited him and he was able to be gratified by that. And so I think it was like a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I do know that the one victim that he shot, 
I feel like that was that escalated into anger, right? Yeah, that was a whole different scenario that we described there. Right. And that was, I mean, it was probably a very interesting thing for him to, uh, for that to occur the way that it did. In fact, it would have probably thrown investigators off at the time, I would imagine. I, I actually don't know. It would throw me off. But, you know, sometimes with these uh, these very clear examples of serial killers where they've had to an extent some confession and there is like it, it, the passage of time has accumulated all this information. Sometimes I think to myself, okay, especially when you've got somebody with so many sexual assault victims and 10 murder victims, right? Uh, that's a huge difference in it's ratio. It's a big number. Yeah. Okay. And so in my mind, what I immediately go to is, well, what was the difference? Why did some of these women survive and why did some of them not survive? Especially the way this all goes down, like it, like no matter how you look at this, from the time he starts raping non-acquaintances to the time he's arrested for serial killing, it's not very long. No matter how – like if you want to count it as three years or one year, no, no matter how you look at it, he's not the type of person you can look at and go – he was only killing sex workers. Well, he was sort of, but he wasn't only raping sex workers. I wondered if he would have, like if say he hadn't got caught, because this kind of felt like testing grounds to me. You know how we talked about like, you're picking on someone weaker or more vulnerable than you, Mm -hmm. like picking on the sex workers. I wondered if it was happening because he hadn't figured out how to do the classified ad rape thing and take out, those victims where he killed them or or is it like you and I were thinking where he only gets off a certain way with the strangulation uh, for a certain period of time. And then eventually he ends up killing the witnesses. I, I never quite figure out exactly what his motivation was. And the other thing that's missing from this is while I know his triggers and I can look through and see what was happening in his life and his work and, and everything going on around him and his relationships, I know what his triggers sort of were. I don't know a lot about his pre-crime behavior. And that is one of the things that like came up in that, um, that Idaho case. That guy had put that survey online. He was asking a lot of stuff about pre-crime behavior. You know what well, I mean when I say pre-crime? Like the planning? Right. Um, and so – in this particular case with this killer, with Bobby Joe Long, um, I actually sort of made my own uh, conclusion. I came to my own conclusion based on the information. And I feel like whether or not they were a sexual assault victim or a murder victim was directly tied to how they chose to interact with him. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would ask if you guys like the show, please share the show or you can go on to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple or Google or uh, one of the more interesting apps, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, We're on all those different things. If you could go on there and leave us a a rating or a review. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to leave us a five-star review, but like whatever you think of the show, leave an honest review of the show uh, because that will help us to grow our audience in season four. 
We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. I'll be in it to start